So if you all have a Bible, if you want to turn to Psalm 90. You know, uh, Jeff and I going to Kentucky State Reformatory, uh, the prison there in, in uh, LaGrange every week. So, you know, you'll meet guys. So a guy that has got a life sentence or, say, 25 years, he's going to be in there a while. He's going to have one attitude about being in there versus the guy that knows he's going to get released in about a week. That guy that's going to be in there for life, you know, he's not too worried if something he does is going to kind of get him in trouble and thrown in the hole or extend his stay. Because what's a few more days or a week if you're going to be in there forever or 25 years? That guy that knows he's going to be out in a few days, not 25 years, He's a lot more careful about how he's spending his time, you know. So he's excited that he's getting out, and he's careful that he doesn't get in trouble, and he's keeping track of his days. He's numbering his days till he gets out of there. And that's what I want to look at tonight by the fact that God will show us that our life in this world is only a few days compared to eternity. And we should be excited about that because that means we're going to see him in a short time, right? And we should also, we're going to see hopefully clearly that we should be numbering our days because we don't have that many left. It doesn't matter what age you are, right? And we also should be watching the way we live because we have this short life and we talked about it the last time I preached. There's what coming after that short life, a day of judgment, isn't there? That we're all going to have to give account for what we do. So let's look at Psalm 90. We'll read the entire psalm. It's not that long, 17 verses. And beginning in verse 1, so it says it's a prayer of Moses, the man of God, the oldest psalm. And it begins, verse 1, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. You turn man to destruction and sayest, Return ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. You carry them away as with a flood. They are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. But in the evening it is cut down and withers. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet it is their, yet is, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us in the years wherein we have seen evil. And let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. So as I said, this psalm is written by Moses. It's the oldest psalm 
that, that was written that is contained in the Psalms. And Israel, he begins this, they have been wandering. They left their homes in Egypt, and they've been wandering in the desert place. And that has been their dwelling place or habitation. And so the question is then, well, is that really that bad that they're having to dwell out in that wilderness? Because Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy 33:27, the eternal God is thy refuge, is what he told them. And how was he their refuge when they were out in that desert? Well, we know the story. They had a cloud by day, and what else did they have? A pillar by night. I mean, that's some kind of way to live, isn't it? And that's how they lived out there. And here's the thing. What we learned from this psalm in verse 1 here, that was nothing new for the children of Israel. Look what it says in verse 1. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. And what does it say? For how long? In all generations. This had been going on since Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were nomads. They lived in, tw in tents. They were constantly having to get up and go settle somewhere else. They didn't have a permanent dwelling place. And the only one they had, their only permanent dwelling place for all those years of their existence was the Almighty God, was their permanent dwelling place. And think about Joseph. He was sold into slavery, had to go into Egypt. He's, he's dwelling in an uncertain place, being taken from Potiphar's house and he's thrown on into jail, thrown into jail down in that dungeon. So does that mean he doesn't have a home anymore? He's a homeless boy in trouble? You know, if you read Genesis 49, three times it says this. We're talking about God is our habitation and Israel's and ours. And three times it says when he was down in that dungeon rotting for something he had never done, it said God was with him. God was his habitation. And that's just the nature of God. He's a refuge to his people. All of us, whether you're a missionary, someone who lives here in Kentucky, whoever, to his people, to all generations. He's always been that way as long as they're in this world. So even when he had removed Israel into a foreign land for chastisement, does that mean they had, he was no longer their dwelling place? Because he had Ezekiel say this, Ezekiel 11, it says, This is what the sovereign God says. Although I have removed them, Israel, far away among the nations, he says, Yet I, the Lord, was a sanctuary, a dwelling place for them in the countries where they have gone. So even though in chastisement, he sent them away from their homes. They were leveled. They had no homes to go to, yet he said, still, in that foreign land, in chastisement, he says, I was their sanctuary. I was their dwelling place. So we should take courage from that. And that's what he's saying there in verse 1. And then in verse 2, it speaks here. It uses birthing language. Before all these words mean, in King James, it's not as clear, but before the mountains were birthed or brought forth or forever thou hast, it says formed. Really, the word is birthed the earth and the world, even from everlasting and to everlasting, thou art God. So it's saying before he ever created this world we see, anything we see in it, he eternally was. Thou art God. And from his eternal power and wisdom, what did he do? It says he brought forth the mountains, 
the earth and the universe. That's what it says right there in verse 2. Before thou hast firmed the earth and the world, before the mountains were birthed. And what is that telling us? That's saying God, the picture he's trying to paint her, he is so much other than the creation that we see, isn't he? That's the picture he's trying to paint. He's infinite. He's powerful. He is enduring. Creation is coming from him as he speaks that word. Before any of it happened, though, he's saying, Thou, there was God. Thou art God. So be ever before you see a mountain in its beauty and its majesty, before that ever took place, you see pictures of the earth when they were up in those Apollo missions. It's beautiful. Before any of that was in its beauty and majesty, there was God. So why does he begin here in verse 2 talking about before the mountains? Why does he begin with the mountains? Because mountains speak of what? Breathtaking stability and permanence and majesty and an endurance, don't they? You look at a mountain, you don't think that thing just popped up overnight like a molehill might, right? That just speaks, it, it images God. In this permanence, this endurance, this stability, this power, this majesty, that's the, the picture you're trying to get. And do you know, I found this fascinating. Do you know there is a major mountain range on every continent in the world? So he is declaring his majesty through the mountains on every continent in this world. All of mankind can see that about God. They're seeing this mountain. How much greater is the God that put it there? Has to be. You know, you got Mount Everest in Asia. That thing is 29,000 feet up. And people, there are bodies littered trying to climb that mountain and dying. And yet it says God just spoke. He gave birth to those mountains. It was nothing for him. And I could go on and name all the other seven, but I don't want to. <laughs> so, hey, what does God do, though? You know, if you think about it all throughout Scripture, when he wants to speak of his majesty and get people's attention, what does he do? He uses mountains, doesn't he? Where did the Ten Commandments come from? Mount Sinai, the Sermon on the Plain. What's the greatest sermon ever preached? It wasn't here. It was the sermon on the what? On the mount, right? And you have the what? The glory of Jesus Christ is evident, comes shining forth in his humanity on where? The mount of transfiguration, right? And so in Acts 1, where does the Lord go up from? Where does he ascend up into heaven from? The Mount of Olives. And you know what's going to happen? Guess where he's coming back on this earth? His feet are going to hit the same place he left from. And it's going to split that mountain in two. So the very mountains that we gas, I mean, I would not even try to climb a mountain right now. <laughs> I don't even want to get to the base of it. The mountain people are dying trying to climb. God himself comes down and lands with his feet and just splits them in half like they're nothing. So he's painting this image of God. Total awe. When you look at him, from everlasting to everlasting, the eternal God. Before there was anything created, God existed without end, didn't he? I'm repeating myself, I know. But I'm trying to get it through. He's steadfast, immovable, unchanging. And so in the end, when all this world, this world is going to be totally burnt up. A new heavens and a new earth. But guess who will still be there? God. Still unchanging. Still ever powerful. He's above it all. And that's the picture that the psalmist is trying to, I probably spent too much time on that, but that's verses 1 and 2. Because what's going, he's going into in verses 3 
through 6 is he is going to contrast this eternal, unchanging, immovable, immovable, all-powerful God to us, to man. And so when you look at verse 3, now this is a case here where I would say the King James is not really good in its translation of the Hebrew because he says, you turn man to destruction and sayest, return ye children of men. Well, really, the word there is a Hebrew word that means dust. The reason it's, they're saying it's destruction is because it's when something is destroyed, the word can mean something that is destroyed and ground to powder. But what he's trying to say here is, and we'll see, he's comparing the fact that man is nothing but a bag of dirt compared to the almighty, unchanging, infinite God. And so really what he's saying here in verse 3 and some of the other translations, if you have an NIV or an NAU, it says, you turn man back to dust. And you say, return, you children of men, to where you are. That's what happens when you die, isn't it? That's what he's talking about there in verse 3. So he's contrasting the God that is the eternal rock to us mortal men that are just mere dust. So God formed us out of the dust of the earth, and when we die, he tells us, you return back where you came from. And that's what Genesis 3.19 says, in the sweat of thy face, he told Adam, thou shalt eat bread till you return unto the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and unto dust shall you return. So man in his rebellion, he wants to think that he can be immortal like God and his own sovereign. And God says, uh -uh, I'm going to remind you right here, you are nothing but dirt. I formed you from the ground. And actually, I looked it up. Do you know if you took all the minerals we're composed of, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, potassium, and a bunch of other ones that are like trace minerals in us, you know what we're worth? A dollar. You, you melt us all down and try to sell us, and we're worth a buck. That's all you're worth, Slim, a dollar. So we're basically, what, a worthless bag of dirt. And like, don't talk about me like that. I'll talk about, that's what I am, all right? I'm a worthless bag of dirt. He's like, I do that all along. But what are we? You know, what he's trying to say here is our lives are what? We're nothing. We are that dash. In between two dates on a tombstone, that's all we are. That's all the more significant man is in comparison to Almighty God. That's what he's trying to tell us. And so he goes on to use these metaphors and images to show the frailty and insignificance of man. So like in verse 4, it says, For a thousand years in thy sight are as but yesterday when it is past and is a watch in the night. So the longest a man has lived that we have recorded, and he didn't quite make it. It's almost a thousand years with old Methuselah, right? That's the joke you always tell. 969 years old. And God says, hey, that man, that dust bag living 969 years, he says, is nothing to me. Absolutely nothing. A thousand years. He says, that's nothing. And you think a lot can happen in our history in a thousand years because it has. You go back approximately a thousand years ago, man, you got the popes, you got the crusades taking place, and in between all that time, you have, we weren't even, America wasn't even here. There might have been a few Indians, I guess, I don't know, but not as we know it today. It wasn't a country. 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. 
And in between that thousand years, we got a printing press that was invented because before that, you know how we had books? They had to write them out by hand and only the rich people, no, they didn't have 13 Bibles like we do. Only the rich people had books. Printing presses invented and on and on and on. We went from horses and wooden ships in a thousand years to fancy cars to a man on the moon in a thousand years. From handwritten books, like I said, to now we got books because I got them on one device. Thousands of books. I don't quite have that many. I might have that. That's my wife. A lot of books on a handheld device that's also your phone, a computer, and a million other things that you carry around, and everybody's got one. That's just unbelievable, right? That's happened in a thousand years. So you got a thousand years, you got people living, people dying, nations rising, nations falling, primitive living to modern conveniences that wouldn't even have been imaginable a thousand years ago. Couldn't even imagine it. And that seems to us like it does to me. You think about it that way, well, that's a long time. 33 and one half generations, a thousand years. And Peter quotes this, Psalm 90, and the way he quotes it is, One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And our text here in verse 4 says, A thousand years to God is just like yesterday. Well, think about yesterday. Does that seem like that's very far off to you? It doesn't to me. That's just like nothing, isn't it? You think about that thousand years, that's like way more than I can really imagine going all the way back in a time machine seeing all that stuff. But he says a thousand years to God is like what yesterday in comparison would be to us, just a short time. And he goes on there in verse 4 to say, and it's as a watch in the night, a thousand years. It's four hours. You know, watching the night, four hours, that's here and gone, isn't it? But that's a thousand years to the Lord. That's how he's explaining it, using these images. And he goes on in verse 5, and he says, Hey, men, you've carried them all away as with a flood. And he says, Our lives resemble a flood scene. And have you ever seen on the news when they had those tsunamis come? And, you know, there you'll see there's a village with houses and children and whatever. And that tsunami comes through, and they literally are, you're seeing them, and they are gone, never to be seen again. And he said, that's what our life's like. We start off young and vibrant, and time comes through the flood of time and just washes us away. We're nothing. Time and eternity just swallows us up like a flood, doesn't it? And that's what he's trying to get across here. And he also says, your life is like sleep, he goes on to say. Carry them away with the flood. They are as sleep. So what happens when you go to sleep? You fall asleep, and next thing you know, you're awake. There goes your alarm. It's like, well, here I am. But you're not aware that eight, how, do some of you sleep 12 hours, like my kids? Eight, 12 hours, nine hours, six, whatever, you know. There's no time involved in that. It just goes by that quick, doesn't it, when you sleep? And Job said this in Job 20. He says, the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of hypocrites, Job writes, is for a moment. He shall perish forever like his own dung. They which see him shall say, where is he? He's saying the hypocrite. He thinks he's, everything's going great for him. The joy of the hypocrite. It's like all of a sudden they're like, where is this guy? And they say, where is he? It says, he said, Job says, he shall fly away as a dream and shall not be seen. Yea, he shall be chased away as a vision of the night. Like a dream you have and then it's gone. 
a vision of the night, he says, Thy eye also which saw him shall see him no more, neither shall his place any more behold him. And so that's what he's saying. Job says the wicked will fly away like a dream. Moses is saying our life is just like sleep. You close your eyes and you wake up, and next thing you know, you're hearing the birds chirping and daylight's creeping in on you. Isn't that the way it goes? He says that's the way our life is. That's the comparison he's making. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, that our lives are like the grass. In the morning, it flourishes. That grass looks nice and green. It grows up. But then what happens? In the evening, it is what? It's cut down and turns brown and is either turned into mulch or hay just that quickly. And he's saying that's the way our lives are. And Job also said a man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower, looks great, 20 years old, you look good. It says then he's cut down. He flees also as a shadow and continues not. So what do we see when we look at, he's comparing man through all these images and metaphors compared to the eternal God. So God is eternal, as we said, all-powerful, steadfast, unchanging, the rock of ages, the eternal dwelling. And he compares that, what he's just done is compare man to him. And he says, we are dust. Life's nothing in comparison to eternity. It's like yesterday. It's like sleep. It's like your summer grass that you're out there busy mowing down. That's what man is like. But he goes on to say man's not only, his life's not only like a vapor of smoke here and then gone, but he goes on to talk about man's life is spent under God's displeasure. And so we see that in verse 7. He says, for we are consumed by thine anger. So you got to keep in mind, Moses is writing this to the children of Israel. They've been wandering in the desert. We don't know exactly when he wrote it, but that's what he's referring to. So when he says we are consumed by that anger, I think he's talking back in the account of Numbers 11, when the spies come back and give the evil report, because here's what is said to them. Numbers 32, he goes uh, on to say, talking about that incident, the Lord's anger, saying he was consumed in his anger, the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel because they brought back that evil report and the people believed it. And he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was consumed. And what do we read here? What does it say there in verse 7? We are consumed by thy anger. That's what he's referring to. He's seeing all that happen. And he goes on to say, Consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath, we are troubled. And <laughs> he's there talking about, if you go back and read Deuteronomy 9, Moses told them several times then, You people have provoked the Lord since day one you came out of Egypt till all the way up to this time in Israel. For 40 years, he said, You have continually provoked him to wrath. In Deuteronomy 9, it says this, At Tibera, at Massa, and at Kilbroth, Hataava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. So Terabah, the first one he mentions, that's when they just, they're murmuring about the fact God has brought them out into that wilderness. And it said a fire broke out and started consuming the people. And Massa is where they complained about they didn't have any water. And they said, is the Lord among us? Like he's trying to kill them. 
and he, they got through his wrath over that. And that Kibroth Hata'ava, that's the graves of lust. You know when that was? When they said, yeah, he's given us this manna, but can he give us meat? And what did he do? He sent that wind in. In came the quails. And as that flesh, it said, was in their teeth, he's killing them. You got what you want. I'm giving you what you lusted for. But while the meat was in their teeth, his wrath came down on them. And that's what it's talking about there in verse 7, for we are consumed. Moses is seeing this. We are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath. We are troubled. But he's saying, he goes on to say, look, here's what's happened. It's like he's saying God has seen their sins. Verse 8, you have set before thee our iniquities and our secret sins are right before the light of your countenance. So there was justice in what he did, wasn't it? They're murmuring, all their sinning that they're doing. He's saying he's just set that right before him, and that's what's brought this upon these people. Can't hide anything. David thought he could, didn't he? And God says, ah, what you did in secret, well, I'm going to expose that openly. And that's what will happen. A lot of times we think we do secret sins, and next thing you know, somehow you're being found out and being exposed. And that's what he's talking about in verse Eight. So in verse 9, he says, For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. He says it again. And we spend our years as a tale that is told. And that's Israel. That's their story of in the wilderness. It really is. So if you just put something there in Psalm 90 and turn back to Psalm 78, I just want to look at part of that. So he's saying all our years. They're saying all our years are consumed in wrath and trouble. And if you look in Psalm 78, a few psalms back, in beginning in verse 30, talking about the quail, it says, They were not estranged from their lust, but while the meat was yet in their mouths, what happened? It says, The wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of Israel. And you would have thought that would have got their attention. But verse 32 says, For all this they sinned still, and believe not for his wondrous works. And look what it says in verse 33. Therefore their days did he consume in vanity, and their years in trouble. Wow. That's not real encouraging, is it? It's like, man, you and your messages on wrath. But that's what it says, though, doesn't it? And in verse 9, it says, all our days, they said, were passed away in wrath. And that's what we just read. That's how it happened. So here's the, here's the point of the whole thing. Why is all this written? Why are we reading this tonight? Why does Moses have this in the psalm? So everybody can just feel bad like we don't have a chance of making it, right? So if you would, turn back to, it's probably familiar, but we're going to actually read it and just not quote it, 1 Corinthians 10. If you would, please. Because the reason we're talking about all this, the reason Moses has this in there, is not to make you feel hopeless. It's to give you a warning, isn't it? Is there anything wrong with a warning? Please? All right. So 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1, Paul's telling him here. He's explaining why all this is there. He says, Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. You need to know something. How that all our fathers, and he's going to go through here and say, look, just because you made a confession of faith, you're water baptized, you had the Holy Spirit, that's no guarantee of anything. If you're not going to walk with the Lord, that's what he's telling him here. He says that all our fathers were under the cloud, 
all passed through the sea. They were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea through the Exodus. They all ate the same spiritual meat, heard those messages being preached, so to speak, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. All of them, he's saying, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So can we sit on that, the fact I've made a confession, I was water baptized, I know I was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke with tongues, and man, did I have a good feeling about it. He's saying you cannot rest on that. Because he goes on to say, verse 5, but with many of them, God was not well pleased. And that's a nice way of putting it. For they were overthrown where? In the wilderness. And here's what he tells us. But verse 6, but these things are our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And neither be ye idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Young people and old people, neither let us commit fornication because some of them committed it and they fell in one day 23,000. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. He says it again. Now all these things... Happened to them, why? For examples. And they are written, why? For our admonition. Us upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, verse 12, you think you're okay? He's saying, I don't care who you are, what you're doing, what's happened in your life. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands, there is a big take heed. That's, that's the word for look. You better look and make sure you do not fall. In other words, how are you living today is what he's trying to tell them. So go back to Psalm 90. So what we just read there to Israel and what we're reading about Israel here and even in through these few verses, it's like you see those big warning signs when you go in a power plant. Warning in red. Don't get near this. Don't touch this. And that's what he's trying to tell us through all this. <laughs> he's saying, be wise. Do not repeat. Warning, do not repeat in big, bold, red letters. That's how we should be reading this. But he looks, so Moses is looking. He's the leader of these people, and he's looking at him. And he's saying these people have been rebellious. They provoked the Lord to wrath, and he's seeing them fall and die thousands a day. I mean, millions of them didn't end up making it. They end up perishing out in that wilderness. Everybody that was over 20 years old. And he's saying, hey, it goes on to say here, all our days are passed away in thy wrath. And here again, King James says, we spend our years as a tale that is told. And actually it's saying, we spent our years like a sigh. It's like one big groan out there in that wilderness. They're not having fun wandering around all those 40 years out there in that wilderness, are they? Under God's wrath. And that's what he's saying here. So he goes on in verse 10. He says, look, here's the way it works. God will allow us. The days of our years are three score years and ten. Seventy years. Ah, that's the, it's about the average lifespan anymore, isn't it? And it has been ever since back in the day after Noah and he says, but if by reason of strength, verse 10, they be fourscore, 80 years, yet 
It's just that strength. But he says, either way you go. What he's trying to say there, it's not a compliment. He's saying, all right, so your average life is going to be 70. And if by reason of strength, you, get, you make it to 80, he's like, it isn't any big deal. And that's what he's telling him because he says, yet is there strength, labor and sorrow. It's not a fun time is what he's trying to say, right? In verse 10. Because he says, even if you make it to 80 years old or the 70, look what it says at the end of verse 10. It is soon cut off. No matter 70 or 80, 10 more years is not going to matter. You're going to still be soon cut off. And he says, you're going to just fly away. We're back to that fleeting time of life. That's what he's telling them there. Fly away. But here's that happens. We're getting to the heart of things here. It gets into verse 11. And I believe here's where Moses gets into the heart of the problem. Look what it says in verse 11. He says this. He asks a question. Who knows the power of thine anger? And I think that is the heart of the problem. That is Israel's main problem. And that is mankind's problem today, even in the church. So he asked that question, who knows the power of thine anger? And you know what the answer is? No one. We don't know it. So he gives us examples of it, the power of his anger in his word, raining down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. The sons of Korah, the earth opens up and swallows them. They descend straight into hell. So we have little indications of it. But even with that, we don't know. And that was Israel's problem. They had never really considered the power of God's anger. What was going to happen to them if they made him angry in his wrath? Didn't take it seriously. And I'm saying, do you? Because even the worst judgments on this earth are not going to fully explain to us the eternal wrath of God. They won't. So look, turn to Revelation 6, if you would, because just look at this in light of what we're saying here. Who can know the wrath, his power, the power of his anger? And when you look in Revelation 6, or listen real well, one or the other, this is when the tribulation period starts and God's judgments start falling. In Revelation 6, 12 to 17, it says this, And I beheld, John writes, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, the sun... Could you imagine seeing this? Became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth, even as a fig tree cast her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And look at this. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Tremendous. Verse 15, the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the cheap captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man, what did they do? They hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and they're calling on the mountains. Oh, they'd rather have a mountain fall on them than God's wrath. Calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. Here's how terrible it is from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath. This is almost a contradiction. The wrath of a lamb. Lambs are gentle, but not this time. Hide us, they say, from the wrath of the lamb. And look in verse 17. For the great day of his wrath is come. And look, 
here where they answer the question, who shall be able to stand? No one is the answer. No sinner. That wrath is going to cleanse this earth in judgment. Terrible times. So I'll say, here's what we're saying. He asked this question back in Psalm 90. Who knows the power of thine anger? And I would say, I don't think anyone can clearly imagine the horror of hell. I really don't. And the Bible describes it as falling, continual falling. Your feet will never be set on anything, those that go to hell. Continual falling. It's going to be utter burning your entire body. You'll be given a supernatural body that will be able to burn for eternity. Utter blackness. Never see another smiling face in hell. Could you imagine that? I mean, man, how much do you look forward to coming home and you see a smiling, friendly face? Never again. Never see your mother's smiling face or anyone's in hell. Utter blackness. Thing is, though, we know from Luke 16, you will have a mind, though, still, and a mind that will be able to remember all the chances you had that you could have got right with God, and yet, no, I'll do it another day, or I don't care. I don't, I'm not concerned about the Lord. I think when I die, I just go back. I'm just dust. I hear that all the time in prison. What do you think happens to you with that? I just, that's it. I'm just dust. I'm like, well, I'll pray for you because it's going to be worse than that. You're not going to just be dust. And the worst thing is, there is no hope of escape. That's the worst of all. As bad as pain would be, if, if you knew at least this is going to be done in a thousand years, ten, I mean, at least you'd have that glimmer of hope, wouldn't you? And somehow I'm going to get relief. But in hell, it's never, you are totally, utterly hopeless. He's saying, who can know the power of that anger? And I think that if we thought about that, that judgment that's coming, and that all of it, it would have a profound impact, wouldn't it, on the way we live our lives. And that brings us to the heart of the message, the heart of what I want to say. So I've already said God is eternal steadfast, sure, the living God, the one that we have to do with, right? And we've said man is nothing but mere dust. A dollar's worth of minerals is all we are. We are just like a puff of smoke, the Bible's saying, here and gone. You see it and it's gone. But what's the Lord done? So he's redeemed us. He's brought us out of that kingdom of darkness that is going to be judged. And so because our life is short, isn't it? And because we know that he is going to judge sinners, that is clear as can be with an awful judgment based on what they do in that life. Here's what our prayer should be. And it's in verse 12. This is the heart. This is the heart of the message. So what does Moses say? Because of all of what I've said up to this point, he begins a prayer. He says, Oh Lord, teach us your people to do what? To number our days that we may apply our heart to wisdom. Teach us, instruct us to realize we need to think and realize how short our life is because we are all can easily and all the time get caught up into everything's going to move on. I got all these things I want to do and you're caught up into your family and it seems like we got a long, long time before any kind of judgment, day of judgment appearing before the Lord is going to happen. And he's saying, hey, Teach us, to, teach us to number our days, 
to realize our time is short and teach us to take full advantage of the few days we have left. And when you get to be older, the older you get, the more you realize you could probably literally take a calendar. And one guy did it. He said, I'm going to live to be 70. I'm this age now. And he's numbering every day on a calendar, marking it off. How many he's got left, however many that was. But that's not exactly what he's saying here. But he's saying we need to have a heart of wisdom. So you're in there. Turn back Psalm 39. Look what David says. This is a prayer David has in one of the Psalms. Psalm 39, verses 4 to 6. And look what David says. The same thing in a different way. Different words. David says in Psalm 39, verse 4, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is. That I may know, he says, how frail I am. Is that a prayer you would ever pray? It's a prayer he prayed. That's what we're reading. Look what he says in verse 5. He goes, behold, you have made my days as a hand breath. You know what that is? That is the smallest unit of measurement in Israel. Two inches. Four fingers, technically. Say, that's all I am is four inches compared to the millions of miles of eternity. My life is just nothing but a hand breath. And he says, my age is as nothing before thee. Verily, he says, truly, every man at his best state, that's all these athletes, he says, is altogether vanity. He says, surely every man walks in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heaps up riches, man does, and he doesn't even know who shall gather them. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So back here in verse 12, his prayer is teach us to number our days that we may apply our heart to wisdom. Because we don't know how short our life is left, do we? We really do not. And I'll tell you, I want to get into, here's how I'm, you're like, how do you get on this message? I'm going to tell you how I got on this message. I pray it's God. But uh, the other day I'm waiting on somebody and they're not showing up and I had the radio on. So I don't listen to the radio all that much. But this guy made this comment, passing comment about the late Tim Wilson. And I'm like, the late Tim Wilson? I knew who this guy was back when I worked a lot and had the radio on. This is some comedian that would be on Terry Miner's show. And, I mean, that guy was more than blasphemous a lot. And I heard that. I, I saw him like the late Tim Wilson knowing that. And I did the quick Google thing, and I'm like, you know how that man died? He was about my age, 52 years old. So he's driving to go do his, one of his little comedy acts, and he's driving with his manager, and all of a sudden it's out of the blue. Everything's fine. He can't breathe. The manager's like, I'm getting you to a hospital right now. Well, guess what? He didn't make it. Died of a heart attack that quick. I mean, I, I'm like, wow. I, heard, I read that. I, I texted Greg. I said, did you hear this guy? I said, that is sobering. It was. It was very sobering to me. So that's one thing that happens. That's Friday, Sunday night. I'm sitting there. I'm thinking, well, let me just see what's going on on Facebook. Real quick. I don't have much on Facebook I look at. Let me see what's going on on Facebook. So here are this guy that is, went to, I went to the seminary, led, led the vacation we took to Israel or the trip. It wasn't a vacation. His name was Jeff Dalrymple. Well, he's got this thing on there from the Southern Seminary News. It says, seminary student, father of four, killed in crash. And there's a picture of him, of him there with his family, but it's small enough I couldn't make out who it was. I'm thinking, man, I wonder if I know this guy. So I... Click on the link, and I start reading the article, and it says, Wade Allen Stevenson, age 42. 
and I realized who it was, and I said, I said out loud, and this is not typically something I would, I said, oh my God, and I started crying. You know who Wade Allen Stevenson was? He was my piano tuner. For five years, he's been coming to our house, tuning our piano, and he's the nicest. I mean, you know, you meet people, and you think the guy will tell you they're a Christian. Well, to me, a lot of them are like Christian car salesmen. It's like, yeah, I hear you. I'm really having trouble. But Wade wasn't like that. He had the most gentle spirit about him. I mean, his countenance is just, I mean, I'm thinking I didn't know. A per I really respected him. I loved the guy. I didn't know him that well, but we would talk a long time every time he'd come to tune my piano. And I told him about me going to the seminary. So he didn't never came and said, hey, because you told me that, I decided to go. But here he went. A year, a year ago, he had started going at age 42. Told me he was wanting to preach. So here's the part that hit me, though. Mr. Wade Stevenson, 42, he got a picture of his wife. It says wife and four kids. I'm thinking, I've only seen three of them here. So Wade gets killed. He drives his car in an intersection up in Indiana. Car plows into him the side. That's the end of him. That happened on July 23rd. They buried him on July 27th. His wife was nine months pregnant and had their son. It would have been his first son on July 31st. I told Lisa, I said, I'm not doubting God in any of that. I don't, people can have things going on in their lives you know nothing about. But just with what I knew about Wade and the way he was, and he was always that way, I said, I honestly, I don't understand. But here's the point, isn't it? Whether it's Tim Wilson the comedian that you're thinking, I would not want to be in his shoes, whether it's Wade and you're thinking, man, he probably made it in for all I could tell. But the bottom line is we don't know when it's going to happen, do we? Because that made me think then, you know, what about the people with 911? They're sitting there probably in these office buildings. I could picture some guy with his feet up. He's drinking coffee. He's talking about his family, maybe telling a story to his coworker. And a split second later, that's, it's all over. Suddenly, it's all over, isn't it? Just that quick. No time to repent. With Wade, no time to repent if he needed to. Tim Wilson didn't probably care to repent from everything I knew about the man. But here's the other thing I thought about. You know what about all these people? They all had plans, didn't they? Tim Wilson, his mind, he's going to go do this comedy routine. He's got plans. He's busy about that. And Wade, I'm not saying your plans are all bad. You know, Wade's working on going to the seminary. I know how that keeps you, and he's working full-time. He's got those plans. And those people in 911, a lot of them, they are planning on making a lot of money. And then it's like suddenly. Think about it. Think about all the plans you got. You tell me. You put yourself in those people's shoes. Do those plans matter at all? Any of them don't matter, do they? Not when death comes. None of those plans matter. So what is that like? What does that tell us? Y'all with me? Turn to Luke 12. It's like this man over here. This man had a lot of plans, this man in Luke 12. I was going to quote it, but let's just look at it. Luke 12, verse 13. Here's a man with plans. And one of the company said unto Jesus, Master, speak to my brother that he divides the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed, Jesus said. Take heed. And not only that, you need to beware of covetousness. 
For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he had plans. And he thought within himself, saying, What am I going to do? Because I have no room where to bestow my goods, my fruits. And he said, I'll do this. i got a plan. This I will do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Ha, soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's not the end of the story, is it? But God, verse 20, said unto him, What thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of you. And what about all your plans? What does it matter? Then whose shall those things be which you have provided? They aren't going to be his. Verse 21, So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. That suddenly got that guy, didn't it? You got him big time. And that's a warning. That's why Jesus says, don't be like him. We need to take heed. You need to be making sure, seen, be on guard, he says. When he says, take heed and beware. Have a guard up against what? Against covetousness. That man wasn't numbering his days, which is what we're talking about him, about with him that man hadn't considered that his life is like what we're talking about tonight. His life is just a vapor, that it's just a dream, it's just sleep. And now it's time for him to wake up. Your soul's going to be required of you. And those things, mister, that you thought were so important, they're all going to be given to somebody else. And they are going to do you no good where you're headed. No good at all. So... You teenagers will listen to me for one minute because I know how it is when you're a teenager. You just don't think that that is ever going to be you because you don't see that many of your buddies dying, do you, at your age? It's all the old people that get to 80. They're the ones peeling off for the most part. You know, one time when I was in high school, we had a guy that had gotten cancer at age 16 in our high school. And I remember he said, I'm going to take the last few months of my life and I'm going to try to sleep with every girl I can and get as drunk as I can and party. And I'm thinking to myself back then, I wasn't a Christian. I thought, you are crazy. And that's what he did. He never repented. Never. He didn't. No one was probably telling him to. He was a good Catholic. So 15 to 55, that seems like an eternity. But let me ask you, young people, honestly. How do you know you're going to make it if you're 15? How do you know that you are going to make it to 16? Because it hasn't been that long ago. I had to work at a house up on one of those Fox Run roads, one of those roads with a lot of curves on it, and I'm working at this house, and across the street, there it is, a monument to six teenagers that had gotten in a car, went out joyriding, they got airborne on a hill, and when they came down, they wrapped that car around a tree, and they're dead and so every day I'm painting at this house and I'm driving by this house, there's the flowers, there's the sign, there's the mother coming, crying, because it just happened. Two weeks I'm looking at that. And so you think that couldn't be you? You guys don't know what you're thinking. Suddenly can catch up with you. You've heard the gospel. You'll be responsible. So that's the way I was. Hey, when I was your age, I'm saying I know how it is. When I was 14, 15, 16, 
I'd seen Billy Graham on TV. I cried. I knew I was going to hell, and I knew what he was saying was right. But I'm like, hey, you know what? When I get to be about 45 and a little tired of sinning, I don't want my kids to be like me. I'm going to repent and get my life right with the Lord. That's exactly how I thought to myself. But in the meantime, I'm going to be like that guy. Soul, eat, drink, and be merry, because you've got a long time to deal with all that stuff. That was my thinking. And you know how I got saved? God started tapping me on the shoulder. A couple people dying in freak accidents. A guy we knew that made hot air balloons caught hold of a wire and died. It shook me up. And God tapped me on the shoulder as a young man. He said, hey, you don't know that you're going to make it next year. And every day you've heard the truth. Every day you wake up, John Solinger, you're playing Russian roulette with your soul, hoping the bullet's not in the gun that day. That came to me. That's how God dealt with me. And I'm thinking, man, that is right. And a fear came in my heart. Because I thought about hell. I listened to Billy Graham. And I knew that's where I was going. And I'm fine. I mean, that's how God dealt with me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So listen, I want everyone to think of this. Think about this. I heard a man say this just preaching. I thought... I've never heard it put like this, but this is a good point. Do you know something? Do you know the one thing that you are only going to do once? Or there's other things, but one thing that you are only going to do once is die. One shot at it. That's it. You think about that. Because there's a lot of things you can do twice, can't you? You bake a cake and it's no good. Guess what? You can bake another one. You can't drive that nail straight. You can just get another one and try it, right? There's a lot of things. You can take your driver's license test multiple times. Many of you have. So you get another chance, right? But listen here. Think about this, all of us. Dying is a one-time event. And guess what? If you don't have it right, it's all over. You'll have all eternity to regret it, whatever age you are. You don't give heed to the gospel. And you presumptuously think I can just go on, I could ignore it, and God's been dealing with my heart, I'm going to just ignore that, and you die? That's it. Whether you're 16, 65, or 100, it doesn't matter. We get one chance to die. I thought that was good. A good way of putting it, should I say. Because that one-time event, when you die, will determine the eternal state of your soul. Think about that. That's the most important thing you'll ever do in this world. Dying right or wrong. And what's that going to be like if you're a person? Think about it this way. What if you die in your sins? And Jesus told him that in, in John 8. The Jews are wanting to argue with him. about. He says, I'm the light of the world. He throws out this unbelievable promise, the light of the world. Anyone that comes to me will no longer walk in darkness, but will walk in the light of light. Why wouldn't you want that? And these Jews in the world, they're arguing with him about that. They're going to argue. They don't want to accept what he says. And he says, if you don't believe that I am he, you, he says, will die in your sins. He says it to him three times. You will die in your sins. And there's only two ways people on this earth are going to die. Do you know that? You're either going to die in your sins or you're going to die in the Lord. There's no in-betweens. There's no second chances. And that's why the message is, Lord, we need to pray, teach us to number our days. 
so we don't end up dying in our sins, right? Because listen, if you die in your sins, you know what's going to happen? You think, and it doesn't happen as much now because people get drugged up when they're dying. But I've got books before they gave people all these medicines and they died knowing what was going on. And people that God, they ignored him, they are not dying pleasant. You think about it, you realize you're dying, and as you're laying there and you're dying, you realize my family can't help me as much as they would like to. They can't help me at all right now. This music, it's not making me feel good anymore at all. It's not doing anything for me. I wish I'd have listened to more godly music, because this music got me. And all the money, the cars, the homes, and the trips, you're dying in your sins. None of that means a thing to you, does it? That was all so important. And you realize as you're dying in your sins that all that days of selfish living, they've caught up with you, haven't they? That's what you would be thinking. And who can help me? No one. The one that could help you, you turned your back on him. No one there. And all you're left with is the knowledge of your past life of sinful living in the future of the wrath of God, and you're all by yourself. Utterly hopeless, desperate feeling of horror, all alone. So we know the rich man, when it talks about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, you know what it says about him? He fared sumptuously every day. He really enjoyed this life. But when it talks about him, here's what it says. He died he was buried all alone, and then he opens up his eyes in Hades. Can't get out. That's how that man died. That's how dying in your sins is. No one there. All your friends can't do a thing for you that you had all these parties with. It's all over. But what are those, on the other hand, of those that die in the Lord? The other way you can die. They don't die alone. Do you know that? Because you look at that same account in Luke 16, and when Lazarus died, you know what it says about him? It doesn't say Lazarus died and was buried. What does it say? Lazarus died, and there was somebody there with him. Because you know what it says? The angels carried him away. He wasn't. And I've seen, I've heard of people, they see angels there on their deathbed. And I've heard of people dying well in the Lord. We, I just talked about one the other day. The man's wife, the missionary, Hudson Taylor. So it doesn't have to be that way, does it? And hopefully it won't be for anyone in this room. In Revelation 14, it says, Blessed are they, are the dead which die in the Lord. So what is it? What do we want our prayer to be? What's the message tonight? God, we're not going to, we're not going to, Knock our heads against God and change him. He's unchanging. He is what he is. He's holy and pure. And only the holy and pure are going to dwell with him. And we're just dust. We're no one to argue with him. So God, our prayer needs to be, teach us to number our days. We can apply our heart, gain a heart of wisdom, that we can have that foundation like Paul talked about that one time. And what does that mean? That we're hearing and we're doing the word that we hear, we're living it. And then we'll have that foundation so when that storm of death comes, we will stand, won't we? 
Because the ones that just come and hear messages and go on their way and just another nice message, oh, I like the way he preaches, and it says do nothing with it. Jesus says then when that storm comes, and believe me, death will be the ultimate storm coming your way. It's saying that foundation is going to crumble because you're going to realize I have not been living what I've been hearing. I don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm afraid to stand before him. Teach us to number our days that we can have that heart of wisdom. We can be that right person and stand in that way because we all are going to go the way of the earth. Unless the rapture takes place. So let me just end on this. You should, are you still in Luke 11, 12? Just turn over a few chapters. That's where I was in Luke 21. And I think I want to end with reading this. Luke 21, verses 32 to 36. And Jesus says in Luke 21, 32, Truly I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away until all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, he says, but my words shall not pass away. And here's another heed. He says, take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting. That word means giddiness from being drunk. Overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life. Why? So that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come upon all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. And so teach us to number our days. He says, watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to do what? To stand before the Son of Man. That's what we need to pray. That God, teach me to realize how short my life is and to take and redeem all the time I have left. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the words you've given us tonight. And I just ask that... You'll just drive that home to all of our hearts, Lord, that you'll just stamp eternity on our eyeballs and let us know that how we live here in this short time that we walk this earth will determine our eternal state and that after this light, life, it is too late. It's asked to make that real to all of us, Lord, and that we can learn from the example of Israel and that we can walk with you on a daily basis and give heed to your word, and be people that do your word. And I just thank you that you'll do that work in all of our hearts. And we just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.